Um, firstly, Matt Lowry um, is a professor, of course, of international politics um, at the Department of Political Science at the University of Oslo um, and uh, at the Norwegian National Defence University College. I'm not going to try and pronounce Norwegian because I'm always going to up here. Um, her main theories, as I'm sure some of you are aware, are in European foreign defence policy uh, and in international security policy, um, as well as the human rights uh, implications aspects of that. She was State Secretary, um, that is Deputy Foreign Minister for Foreign Affairs of Norway. Not often we get uh, a minister to speak. Uh, representing the Christian Democratic Party uh, in the Bondic government um, from 1997 to um, And you should be aware of her latest work. I know you've got a copy there. Can I just hold one up? This is a yes, box. Um, to make sure people um, know what this is. Uh, here it is. NATO's European Allies, Military Capability and Political Willingness. And of course there's also a book on um, European uh, Union security dynamics in the new national interest. Um, both come out uh, with Palgrave. Um, so I highly recommend um, that. Yeah, look, I'm going to hand over to you, Robin, speaking of it. Thank you very much. It's uh, a great pleasure to be here. And uh, I have sabbatical this term, so I'm here at the Changing Character War Program trying to work on a new book which uh, has the working title Strategic Effects, um, Europe and the Use of Force. And that will try to delve into what strategy means today and the effects uh, of strategy that, uh, that we ought to have and then look at the empirical uh, examples from European use of force. So it allows me to indulge in my interest for strategic, uh, should one say, rigor, and then look at the reality of messy politics, which is, uh, in the end, what decides, perhaps. I have um, um, led a NATO research program in Oslo, and we are now working on a new program on NATO with Johns Hopkins University, hopefully also with the Changing Character War Program, where we will try to um, piece out what topics for NATO politics should be uh, and how to <coughs> go about developing policy ideas and perhaps consensus on that. Uh, I'm hoping the Norwegian Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs will fund it. They have the first chance, and if they won't fund it, the MOD certainly will. <laughs> so there's a chance for foreign policy. Now, what uh, we try to do in, in this book, because my co-editor, I have a co-editor who is a Swede, which is al always recommendable because they do all the work on the footnotes. They are very, very <laughs> meticulous and very structured, so I can do the sort of high-flying thinking, and they do all the pithy details, which are very necessary for any academic work. Magnus Pettersson, and uh, he is with the Norwegian Defense uh, University as well. And we asked experts from eight NATO countries to write chapters, not all NATO countries, France, Britain, the leading ones, Spain, Poland, the not so leading ones, but uh, sort of great power countries uh, that want to be counted. Uh, two small Western states, Denmark, Norway, uh, to uh, another Central European uh, small state, Hungary, uh, we asked the authors from these states to analyze whether their states have both military capability and political will to use it. Now, this is very imprecise in a way. It's difficult to herd cats, difficult to get academics to, uh, <laughs> to 
address the same kinds of issues uh, rigorously, but we have tried. And we have a generic part here written where we have a very interesting chapter by Christopher Coker, a uh, pessimistic chapter on the lack of a culture for war, so to speak, in Europe, uh, the peace culture, soft power, uh, this uh, enormous cultural change that probably matters a lot, uh, and the former chief of defense of Norway, General Sverre Beeson, has written on the uh, sort of move, race to the bottom of um, te technology or military equipment that many states are now approaching uh, the level of critical mass for their equipment. So it doesn't do you any good to have two tanks if that's all you can afford, or two submarines, you have to have at least six or 10 or so, whatever. So when you get to this point of uh, critical mass, then <coughs> there's now a threat that small and medium-sized uh, European states will then stand without real military capacity almost all of a sudden, because this is not a linear progress, it's a, it's a sort of uh, stage which you reach and which politicians are not interested in discussing very much. So um, the generic part of this book uh, is perhaps uh, uh, even more interesting than the country chapters. So I will hand it around for you to just have a glance at. I saw that it's in this library, uh, so library use only, unfortunately. And now let me uh, try to analyze um, uh, both the findings and the assumptions uh, that we have uh, for this analysis. Uh, and this is just uh, what Americans would say a first cut, so to speak. It's a first uh, attempt to be um, systematic in the analysis of will and capability because uh, there are many, many variables that are important to, uh, to discuss in much greater detail. Uh, if we look at Europe and we say, what are the assumptions of the use of force today? What are they essentially? Uh, they are uh, that we deal with limited war or the uh, uh, limited use of force for national interest or rather for most European states to stop something that is getting too bad, to stop something from happening. A typical uh, Kosovo, maybe Libya situation, uh, some things are too intolerable. So we have immediately a connection to humanitarian intervention, human rights, human security. Uh, so European states do not use force to um, uh, to promote their national interest aggressively, which is also forbidden in the UN Pact, uh, but uh, in a way they have a, a realistic view at the same time. Uh, there is uh, a growing uh, realism in uh, the use of force, realism understood as uh, traditional security policy, geopolitics. Uh, in Europe, I was just uh, perusing the Livre Blanc uh, the, the Défense de Sécurité, which came out now the 29th of April, and the French clearly uh, state that they will secure, stabilize the rims of Europe, uh, particularly the Maghreb, uh, the Sahel uh, area, and that they will deter, etc. So it's a geopolitical strategic analysis at the beginning of that uh, white book. 
So, uh, but the use of force is limited. Uh, may be used in extreme cases, ultima ratio, for humanitarian reasons. Uh, but mostly, uh, today we don't speak about state-to-state -state wars. So it is not Churchillian times, no place for Churchillian rhetoric, difficult to engage publics uh, about the use of force. They have no experience anymore, usually no conscription. We have retained it. We conscript 10% of the young people about. So there's more of a link, uh, but we study your British covenant for clues to how to deal with this problem of people not supporting Afghanistan or Libya as a political cause, but uh, the need to support the soldier or the military profession and the risks of that profession. Uh, so that's why we say that military cultures, that the fact that you have an understanding of in society, general understanding, that the military man or woman uh, is in a very different profession which entails risks of giving one's own life and taking lives, uh, that war and peace are different in so many ways, but, there are, but there's a sphere of war or military sphere which is very, very different from civilian life. Uh, states that have this uh, are much more able to use force uh, today than states that lack it, and many states lack it. Uh, so this is, uh, and there are interesting empirical uh, examples of this. Norway has had, <coughs> um, should one say, peacekeeping has been the sort of label for the use of force since uh, World War II. Uh, I mean, the Cold War was on an abstract systemic level. The use of force was UN <coughs> operations. Uh, when they became sharp operations, uh, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Libya, Afghanistan, and so on, uh, the politicians were very slow to recognize this and very unwilling, so they would label this peacekeeping. Afghanistan is sort of kind of peacekeeping, doing good for the people in Afghanistan. Uh, the same you would find in, uh, in the German discourse, national discourse, to an extreme extent. Germany is the sort of the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the example we can always point to and see the most extreme kind of uh, peace rhetoric uh, and then one looks to Britain and there is defending the national interest uh, in Helmand uh, and so on so you talk about war the Americans talk about war Germans talked about peace in Afghanistan peacekeeping the Norwegians transited from um, doing good developing Afghanistan and so on to uh, acknowledging war fighting going on uh, never calling it a war because of the legal implications, but saying there is war fighting. And I was very active in this debate in Norway uh, from the um, academic uh, standpoint, the free standpoint of criticizing the government. And at one point I wrote um, in the paper that uh, the Minister of Defense um, does not laud the sharpshooter. He aims on behalf of the government. He shoots on behalf of the government and he hits. Uh, successfully on behalf of the government and the government is not pleased because uh, she, the minister, refused to uh, acknowledge this activity at all and said that uh, um, we, are not, we don't celebrate military victory, we have no military tradition at all. Uh, so we find uh, a change. Afghanistan has been a great lesson for some countries in Europe in this regard. 
also, I should mention that Denmark is a country that turned from having a pacifistic footnote quality to its uh, NATO policy in the 80s into becoming uh, a very, uh, should one say, forward-leaning country in NATO um, from 1990 onwards. It has switched or changed its uh, peace culture into a military culture, very con consciously uh, by the help or the instigation of two government ministers at the time. So this is an example that military or strategic cultures are not constant features of a country. They change and they may be changed by outer events or by domestic uh, politicians. And now, of course, uh, Anders Fogh is uh, the Danish uh, section of NATO, something he would never have become hadn't Denmark been in Helmand and uh, everywhere where the Americans wanted to go. So this is the background. And then uh, we have the uh, NATO, of course, is, is all about the US, almost all about the US, very much about the US, pays 77% of total NATO cost or budget today is American. So uh, Europe as a total is 23%, very, very, um, should one say, unacceptable burden sharing. And burden sharing today, unlike in the Cold War, is not about spending on defense. It's not the magical percentage of the GDP, but it is about risk-willing relevant military capability. So if you have large mobilization armies, they do not really count. They are rather useless because they are <laughs> maybe useless in a total war against the Soviet Union, but that was times gone by. So who has the willingness to take risk? Who has relevant capacity, meaning uh, expeditionary forces um, that are professional in every sense. And you know that uh, European uh, defense structures have undergone a tremendous change, uh, but slow change after the Cold War from um, mobilized forces, large standing armies, reservists to expeditionary. And some countries have changed little. Finland, they have the latest the bicycle model for the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Finns are good fighters, of course, but they wait for the Russians still. The Germans are very slow. To, they are unwilling to become too expeditionary. The latest uh, policy is to have 10,000 soldiers only out of 170,000 that can be deployed uh, in expeditionary operations. So what counts as relevant capa capabilities today, special forces, intelligence, uh, advanced uh, equipment, um, the professionalization uh, for going anywhere on the globe within five days to bring all your support with you. Uh, and of course, there's a strong relationship between the political willingness to use force and having it. So if you only are politically willing, uh, it doesn't do you very good. The, you know, you, you can't be politically willing without delivering for, for very long. The chapter in Hungary shows this, that Hungarians are more than willing <laughs> to, to go anywhere. The Americans are demanding, but uh, they don't have much to offer. So the chapter on military capability here by General Deaton points out that budgets determine um, the real uh, sort of nuts and bolts of security and defense. 
And Julian Linde French has a wonderful quotation where he says, states only recognize as, as much threat as they can afford. <laughs> and this is typically in uh, you know, the official white papers and so on, you get a wonderful chapter on security risks, security threats and risk. Then you get a chapter on the budget, which has nothing to do with the security and risk chapter. And then you get the uh, sort of meat of the paper. So budgets are decreasing. I checked at the, the military balance 2013. Uh, and um, some European states are decreasing by 16, 17% uh, in, uh, uh, in nominal terms. Uh, Slova Spain, Slovenia, Italy, uh, but also countries like Britain and France are cutting their budgets. Norway has continued its nominal budget because of the oil, so we are not cutting back, uh, but in real terms, of course, we are, we are losing uh, spending cap capability because of the cost nature of procurement. But uh, during the NATO meeting in Chicago, John Stewart on The Daily Show in interviewed Ivor Dolder, the American NATO ambassador. And uh, Dolder is very, very correct diplomat. And then um, John Stewart said, uh, so who, is, who isn't cutting back on the NATO budget? And, um, uh, and, and Ivor said, well, Norway isn't. <laughs> Norway is, in fact, increasing slightly. <laughs> and then John Stewart said, Oh, so that's the new big power. This is where we're going to attack next. <laughs> but anyway, we Norwegians are so few in the world, we have to say something about ourselves when we have a chance. So as Christopher Coker writes so much about in his various books, there is a cultural factor here, which is very deep. And to him, uh, for him, this is the main explanation why Europe is so uninterested insecurity and defense, ducking it, avoiding it, not wanting to talk about strategy. It's a cultural factor uh, of um, soft power of the European model of the EU uh, and of not having a national patriotism, not having a nation to defend, not being proud to defend your nation. And of course, there's a direct link between what you defend, officially you defend your king and country, queen and country, uh, you don't defend an abstract EU or UN and so on. Although you could make the point that uh, to the noblest thing is to defend the weak and, uh, and the uh, threatened and so on, so that humanitarian interventions should be, in a way, uh, giving the legitimacy that is perfect for Europeans. Uh, but I think this cultural factor, which is very fascinating to, to deal with, because when you look at when you speak with German politicians or, uh, or German intellectuals and so on, they are in a way uh, shocked at the idea of using force. It is something that is immoral to them uh, to a very deep extent that um, they, they, don't, they want to avoid the topic altogether. Uh, whereas when you speak with Brits or French and so on, this is a fact of normal international politics. So clearly there are significant differences within Europe. So uh, I don't think we have explored this sort of deep peace assumption, but uh, all strategic insight suggests that if you ignore uh, the possibility of war, of being put under pressure, of being attacked, 
then you will invite attack. So, civis pacem parabellum, the older dance. It's very, very true that if you have some red lines and if you, you uh, uh, signal that these are my red lines, uh, if you show um, ability to, to use stick, not only carrot in diplomacy, having uh, coercive diplomacy as part of your tool, uh, then certainly you will, you will be respected and recognized uh, by the Russians, Chinese, and so on. And, of course, Home Alone. This is the film, you know, where this uh, little boy is home alone, and he lives in a very tough neighborhood. He has some <laughs> tough people trying to break into his house, uh, and he deters them, and he manages the situation. And Europe being now home alone, in NATO uh, more and more uh, is in this kind of tough neighborhood. The Caucasus, uh, the Middle East, Maghreb, Arab winter, um, and um, uh, of course, uh, perhaps Russian interest in uh, testing uh, will. We are always thinking about this for the Arctic. Uh, will the Russians at some point test our will to resist uh, in a conflict, and again, limited war, meaning the use of force to uh, gain uh, the upper hand in a conflict of interest. And a conflict of interest is normal because interests differ among states. Uh, so we have these scenarios of what happens at sea uh, with air power, sea power, not on land probably, uh, in a quick in and quick out. And we have potential conflicts with Russia. I found a very interesting book yesterday in, uh, uh, in the bookstore here, uh, just published by a, an Oxford uh, man called um, Russia, the Western Military Intervention, Roy Allison from St. Anthony's. And his conclusion is that Russia, um, Russia remains wedded to the idea of a concert of great powers. So the notion of international law in Russia is the old notion of great power, um, should one say conciliation, ordering the world among the great powers. It is not human rights, humanitarian interventions, and so on. And he notes that there is no congruence with the West at all regarding the view of international law. As we saw, Russia used international law very instrumentally in the intervention in Georgia 2008. And he says there's a positivist view of law, uh, which is uh, very, very clear. There's no recognition of um, human rights trumping uh, sovereignty. And the same is true, of course, for China, which has uh, punished uh, Norway quite a lot and still does over the Nobel Peace Prize in Liu Xiaobo. Just to make the point that there is no human right that overrides, that is valid for Chinese citizens. If you break Chinese law, then you are a lawbreaker and a criminal. And China Going Global is another title just published. David Campbell, Ox also Oxford University Press, and he says, by 2020, China is the number two after the US in military spending. Uh, in the end, he says, quote, all of China's involvement in global security will be shaped by its own calculations of national interest. So we are in a world now that is economically multipolar already, but which is rapidly becoming also multi, not rapidly perhaps, becoming multipolar gradually at least. 
because the U.S. is really in a class by itself militarily and will be so for a long time. But we see that China increases its military budget by about 11% yearly. Russia is now again flying bombers or T's in northern North Sea. Uh, the same level of uh, exercises as in the Cold War. Um, and also modernizing. So I'm not suggesting that China and Russia will be in a par with, uh, with uh, the US or NATO anytime soon. But we see that the use of force uh, is very much a, a, a function of the view of international law, human rights, the view of sovereignty and national interest. So we have a model of realpolitik, which is the old uh, centuries old model of international affairs, which is now cropping up again, which is now uh, making itself uh, visible uh, in the South China Sea, but also in jo Georgia. This was the NATO expansion to Georgia, as was suggested by the NATO Council, as was promised almost to Georgia, was seen in Russia as being an, um, an invasion into their sphere of interest. So this term sphere of interest is, is now again relevant. Uh, and this is where we should be concerned. These are the things that we are, in a way, what security and defense is about. It's the, it's the system, it's the rules of the system. Uh, now, given this, um, what do the Europeans do? The U.S. is turning to Asia. The U.S. is cutting its budget. Uh, the U.S. expects the burden sharing to be, become more equal and that the Europeans will lead. And we take our point of departure in this, uh, Robert Gates. Uh, politicians are, of course, more interesting when they leave office when they have left office than when they are in office. And upon leaving, Gates uh, said at the NATO last ministerial meeting in NATO in June 2011, he said, NATO is becoming a two-tired alliance between members who specialize in the soft humanitarian development, peacekeeping, and talking tasks, and those conducting the hard combat missions between those willing and able to pay the price and bear the burdens of alliance commitment and those who enjoy the benefits of NATO membership, be they security guarantees or headquarter billets, but don't want to share the risks and the costs. This is uh, an old uh, criticism, but this time it's much more vocal, it's much more uh, real. Uh, there is a real impatience uh, in the US uh, and also a lack of interest in NATO, frankly. For the Europeans, uh, this is very bad news because we need uh, U.S. interest, as Lord Ismay said, the point of NATO is to keep the Russians out, keep the Germans down, which they do themselves, uh, keep the Americans in. So this is still the, the, uh, the task of Europeans is to keep the Americans in, to keep them interested. Uh, and they are, uh, I was just in Washington some weeks ago and uh, talked about these topics and the lack of interest in NATO is measurable in Washington. One can look at uh, the topics for research, which is very much about nuclear and South uh, East Asia. Uh, one can look at meetings about NATO and the ambassadors told me that, uh, yes, frankly, it's very hard to get an American interest in NATO. And for the best measure of this, according to uh, Barry Posen, uh, at MIT is that American officers who want to 
have a real career do not want to go to a NATO uh, job. So I think that's a, a good indicator. Now, uh, what do the Americans do then? Uh, if we look at the literature of why, why Europeans contribute to operations, uh, we look at uh, what is called alliance dependence. Uh, Snyder in 1984, classical article, but also other empirical studies that the thesis is that we contribute because the U.S. asks us to do so. And the U.S. will naturally go around with a collection box. Uh, what can you contribute? And do some arm twisting. And uh, I've been in such meetings where <laughs> our diplomats say, point taken. Yes. And we always contribute, almost always contribute, because we always fear Russia. So we have this geopolitical calculus at the bottom of this. It's sensible calculus, I think. Uh, others contribute because they get uh, sort of red carpet treatment in Washington. They get close uh, relations with the president and uh, with Britain and so on. There are many, many advantages uh, to contrib contributions that are not related just to security. Denmark is a good example. No natural enemies, nothing to fear. Denmark has uh, abolished its submarine fleet because it's very costly, they don't need it. Um, but Denmark has gone expeditionary. And uh, they, do, they, they are always in the forefront. Uh, they're almost in the mission uh, field before the mission has started. They were on the way to Libya before <laughs> Sarkozy's uh, planes. Uh, because they reckon that this is uh, sensible international affairs. So alliance dependence when the U.S. beckons. And then the great or the most disturbing question of the book is what happens when the U.S. does not beckon? When France does it, or Britain, or French-British leadership, or perhaps nobody, will Europe, European NATO states, then contribute to any operation? Now, the empirical uh, research is surveyed here. What we know about why, uh, about these questions, Prestige is important also. In a mission where the UK is, France will come. If France should be in a mission without the UK, the UK will be there. Uh, both countries want a close relationship with Washington. France has increasingly developed its relationship. Uh, so these reasons are very important. But then also, of course, national interest. France in, in Africa uh, has its own security policy in Africa, so does Britain, Britain and the Falcons, national interests, Norway and the high north. Um, we, we have a sort of way of saying, we wonder what the gap is. The gap is not this uh, store of, of uh, clothing, summer clothing, but the gap is Article 5 and own operations. What must we take care of in terms of, of threats and risks on our own? what will become an Article 5 situation? This question we have debated for 40 years in the Cold War, really wondering what Article 5 would, would be like, what kind of situation. And then we got the answer at 10, at 12, 11, uh, 2001, that it was uh, the attack on Manhattan was Article 5. So it's the only Article 5 definition in NATO's history, one that the US uh, said, thank you, but no. But it's interesting that uh, since limited war is the thing, not Article 5, but 
skirmishes, small incidents, planned or unplanned, uh, or signaled beforehand or not, since this is where the action will be, it is below Article 5 in a way. So this is the interesting thing that uh, Europeans may have to deal with risk and threat on their own much, much more than before because of the nature of, uh, uh, of this. That Article 5 is up there and it would take a major situation to diagnose it as Article 5. Turkey, Turkey's relations or problems with um, Syria now uh, and, for, uh, and in 2003 with Iraq, uh, the same question, is it Article 4, can we have consultations under Article 4 of the Washington Treaty or is it something that almost involves the others and the others are not interested in being involved. Right now in Washington, Cameron is talking with a press conference from yesterday uh, where Cameron came to Washington with some interest in uh, arming the opposition in Syria. Now it is uh, considerably toned down to having a peace conference, which is what Obama uh, would like not to get involved. And Turkey is very disappointed. So you see this, uh, this is the fascinating thing that we don't speak about Article 5, we speak about Article 4. Then there is a factor, domestic factors. This is a sort of the most illegitimate factor in determining security and defense policy because um, if your public opinion, if your pressure groups, if your coalition concerns determine whether you contribute or not, it is bad from the point of view of security and defense policy, certainly. Uh, so the question, does domestic politics trump uh, strategic concerns? And in a way, when you speak about Article 4 uh, limited situations, uh, yes, they do. Uh, is there a way out of this, in a way? If there's an existential, we shall fight on the beaches situation, then there's no question about what's most important. But if it is, we may go to Syria or Libya or so on, we don't have to, it's not existentially important to us, then of course, uh, why should this be more important than uh, the coalition, keeping the coalition together? I cite uh, Sarah Krebs, who has written about uh, ISAF, uh, saying that the old deal in NATO was that uh, all parties supported NATO, no breaking of ranks, uh, as long as uh, they had a tacit understanding that you wouldn't break out and say, now I go for elections, I want to get out of Iraq, uh, this will bring me the electoral victory. This is what, uh, in a way, what uh, Schröder did in Germany in 2003, used this uh, Iraq issue, opposition to Iraq, in order to get re-elected. Krebs' research shows that ISAF contributors continue to contribute despite public opinion being below 50% for the operation. Yet they do so only when countries do not uh, break ranks. No, parties, I mean. But when parties break ranks to gain the benefit of being becoming popular, uh, then uh, it un unravels. So she asks, for how long will NATO countries be able to keep uh, a party agreement, a tacit agreement that security and defense policy is above the fray of domestic politics. And we see in empirically in Norway, we can see that uh, parties uh, 
disagree more and more on missions uh, and there is less and less agreement on where to go but there is an agreement on the importance of NATO because of the geopolitics. But in other countries where there's no geopolitical sort of um, um, structural factor, uh, this disagreement is sort of wide open. Germany is the case. After 1990, the Germans felt very free to disagree completely, and now they uh, say, in a way, we don't, we're not interested in defense questions at all. We're not interested in this field of foreign policy, so to speak. ISAF is the uh, best case of showing how unequal and unjust the burden sharing has been among allies, because clearly in an alliance you don't accept that some take the risk all the time and others do not. And we saw that Germans took very little risk, although they were fighting in the north. Um, uh, the Danes went to the south. We went partially in the south, uh, but didn't say so publicly. Special forces, they defined their area of operation to Kabul and and surroundings, and surroundings was the rest of the country. <laughs> because we had a domestic uh, poli political issue with the left socialists who were in the government, who are still in the government, opposed being in the south, uh, opposed being offensive, and opposed sending special forces. So uh, ISAF, one sees this spelt out by NATO countries. Canadian politicians say, we don't accept this. We die and they pay, in a way. And in Libya, uh, we see the other interesting thing that only some very few contribute. In uh, ISAF, all NATO members contributed, plus a number of others. In Libya, only eight countries contributed, and only four of them in very forward combat roles. Denmark, Norway being with France, Britain, uh, and Belgium, in fact, in doing a lot of sorties. This was a way for us to say, well, we had some problems in ISAF, but we are now good guys in Libya. So uh, one asks this in the questions. Uh, what can we say about the results? So what, do we, what, what can we say here? The Europeans have historically used force for <coughs> political ends. Of course, historically, that's very, very true. The old continent, but also after World War II. Uh, we all remember the Suez, French-British venture with Israel, uh, to the dismay of Washington, uh, the Falklands, Maggie Thatcher, uh, Bosnia, where I think Britain was uh, willing to use ground troops uh, much more so than uh, the US, and also the same was true in Kosovo, but it became an air operation, uh, which of course had a strategic effect of being very ineffective when you can't use, see the panzers of Milosevic and his ground movements, and you can't bomb him either. So the complementarity of military tools is very often dispensed with for political reasons. Uh, and now we have uh, the French and the British being more interested in doing something in Syria uh, than the US. It's a very interesting situation that the uh, French foreign minister uh, has talked about the need to um, at least arm the opposition, whatever the opposition is, and the same uh, goes for Cameron. And Libya was a case of French, foremost French initiative um, 
for strategic reasons, I think, to get back in the sort of the right side of the Arab Spring. But followed with uh, being a French-British cooperation. Uh, and I think the many, many advised against Cameron's uh, commitment to Libya, uh, but he decided to go. So in a way, we could say it's, a, it's an interesting and open question, this, that you have so many European allies that are not uh, interested in using force, and you have some that are clearly almost taking a lead on Washington, perhaps, with Obama and their Obama policy. Christopher Coker's uh, very interesting chapter is sort of looking into the uh, historical evolution, cultural factors, the, the zeitgeist in Europe. So uh, that's a highly recommendable chapter. General Deason uh, shows how there must be um, ability uh, via some kind of defense integration. And here I would just note that France and Britain are the two most, uh, they, their cooperation on uh, integration is the sort of foremost model today in Europe. Very little happens. It's a scandalously neglected field because politicians do not want to deal with the loss of sovereignty that is entailed in some, in a radical kind of cooperation, it be it cooperation or be it niche specialization. So this is, in a way, where the, uh, as we say, the dog is buried. This is the, this is the sort of Achilles heel that nobody wants to really deal with. The EU had an attempt at, uh, and NATO has had many attempts, but NATO cannot force anybody to cooperate or integrate, uh, can only suggest. So we have some AWACS, we have transport planes, some common NATO projects, but there are so many plane systems, so many tank systems, so many artillery systems, and so on, in small European states. So in a way, this will go very badly unless something is radically done about it. NATO has no uh, common security strategic vision, despite the, the <laughs> concepts, the strategic concepts being sort of diplomatic papers these days. Uh, so NATO is a coalition of the willing and able at any one time. It's a coalition, it is not, uh, it's a sort of, you dip into it and you use the military uh, command structure, which is unique to NATO. Sean Kay, American expert, uh, he says this time it's serious, it's real, it's a generational thing. Uh, American politicians have no particular link to Europe, not nothing to World War II anymore. Um, uh, the cuts are real. Uh, when I was in Washington in the last two years, uh, it was interesting, and also during the Libya operation, uh, the press reported on the cost of the cruise missiles. Today we shot 10 cruise missiles. The price tag is this. I've never seen that before. So the sort of cost consciousness uh, and the, you know, NATO, the NATO literature, which is often very poor, very academic, I mean, analytically very poor because it's very opinionated, sort of uh, this expert thinks that and so on. It talks about crisis. So you have 60 years of literature about crisis and Henry Kissinger has the record of predicting crisis every decade <laughs> of these 60 years. So you, know, you find crisis and crisis, but the, if you look at the variables that are at play now, it's, it's, uh, it's different from the usual crisis. 
try would. In Britain, you have the foreign policy prerogative. That means that uh, the head of state can decide, not the head of state, she is not doing that, but the prime minister, government decides on the use of force without having to get uh, the okay of parliament. Uh, you have global power status, wants to retain it, must integrate more with uh, France, probably. Uh, I, I don't have time to go into the details, but you know Britain. Yves Boyer about France, uh, written in a very Franco-English style, his chapter, so you might enjoy that. Uh, France is uh, perhaps the country uh, that has the most consistent strategic thinking. And uh, I would just recommend the Livre Blanc uh, for its analysis. It's, you know, they are really serious about nuclear deterrence. They say we will shoot first, you know, if you, if you misunderstand our national red lines, we will hit a, a light nuclear doses at you. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are really extremely serious about nuclear deterrence. And they uh, say we must be responsible for parts of Africa because it's in our interest. And the Mali operation is an example of exactly this policy. Uh, it's a unilateral trench with some British uh, garniture there uh, after a while. So this is interesting because France has been the odd man out, of course, after de Gaulle's uh, 66 withdrawal from the military command, but will now with Hollande stay in the military command. Uh, and Yves Boyer, he writes that uh, what we will do is to be nice and good, sort of be in NATO, work with the Americans, and of course with the British, although we think the British are now uh, in sort of a slippery slope regarding the EU and Europe, so we're waiting to see what they decide. And we will write, wait for the right moment to relaunch a European common security policy. So that's the very consistent thinking. It is the goal, uh, and there's a continuity because ideology doesn't matter when they have the system they have of insulation of the armed forces, strategic thinking, the grand école recruitment to the state and defense industry, they have a sort of uh, walled strategic uh, setup. So ideology, what people think and so on, doesn't really uh, get to them, doesn't matter. And I would say also that the use of force is incredibly popular in France. 76% supported the Mali, supports the Mali mission. You know, so Hollande discovers that he can get popular by, not by cutting, not by taxing the rich as a good socialist, but by using force, uh, like a socialist usually wouldn't want to do. Germany, Benjamin Schreer, who has now a professorship in Australia, so he's safely on the down under. Uh, he can say what he wants. Uh, very good uh, analysis of Germany. Of course, being the cultural factor being still very, very important. Peter Struck, when he was defense minister, I asked him about why are you so sort of cowardly there? Why aren't you doing more in Afghanistan? Why aren't you in combat operations? And he said, well, we did World War II, so you know, we have to make amends. He was still using this World War II excuse uh, 70 years after. And uh, my son, who was a combat soldier in the, in the North, in the Quick Reaction Force in the North, he had to, they were out saving Germans in Kunduz when they were attacked because they would never go out of the camp. 
So Germany has, uh, sort of, from a soldier's point of view, it's despicable in a way what they offer their soldiers in terms of recognition or lack of recognition. Uh, but it is the economic giant in Europe. So uh, in NATO, it has to, you know, something has to happen to make the Germans do more if NATO is go going to be viable uh, in Europe. That's the one point. And the other point that Freer makes is that Germany has now come of age and talks about national interest. Uh, but they, so they are in a way able to say, we're not interested in uh, the national interest of, uh, uh, we're not interested in security and defense, thank you. We are interested in economic policy. So we want to be a great economic power. We are not going to lead in NATO. We don't want to get embroiled in anything in Africa. Uh, we have chosen a different path. This is really a very interesting postmodern view of foreign and security policy. Very consistent with soft power thinking. Uh, and Libya is, you know, a good example of this. Germany abstained with Russia and China on the resolution, uh, giving uh, all necessary means uh, the, the power to use force in Libya. So why would they abstain when they could have just gone with it and not contributed much? Uh, there is some disagreement on the interpretation of this, but uh, the effect is really that Germany said, we, we take a completely different course than that of the US, UK, France, and the others in NATO. We don't care much about NATO solidarity at all. Spain, pacifistic, very much uh, sort of legacy of NATO, negative view of the military. Uh, Asnar was very ideologically interested in being close to Washington and therefore was in the Iraq war. And as you know, probably uh, one of the cases where we can trace a terrorist website to a sort of a course of action was when uh, the Spaniards and the Brits had elections at the same time and the uh, uh, Islamist website central in that sort of neck of the woods uh, suggested that somebody should attack in either one of the countries to get the election, to get the socialists elector, elected in Spain. And they said, you should uh, probably choose Spain because if the socialists get in, they will retreat from Iraq. And as you know, the Madrid attacks came a week before the elections. Zapatero was elected and immediately the uh, tr troops from Spain were uh, drawn back from Iraq. Well, nowadays, Spain is in an enormous crisis, but uh, it's interesting that this former great power has such a negative view of, of uh, the military. Poland, on the other hand, is very willing and very proud of its military tradition, uh, but it follows very much the US. So it was not interested in being in Libya, a point that was publicly criticized by Gates. Then some uh, lesser countries, perhaps, three small ones, Hungary, uh, all also motivated by the fear of Russia, geopolitics like Poland, like Norway, like the Baltics, uh, not much to contribute, although they had a PRT in uh, ISAF. The Danes, I explained, uh, very, very eager to be close to the US. Norway, uh, usually the same. So it's sort of, uh, uh, the old NATO um, sort of thinking. The findings, uh, countries where there is a military culture, 
which makes it much easier to deploy in non-existential wars, so to speak. France, UK, Denmark, Norway, not in Germany, not in Spain, not in Italy. Uh, of course, one could study this in much greater detail. Where there is a lack of such a culture, politics matters in terms of ideology. Socialism is uh, negative to the use of force. Conservative parties are not and so on negative to the US. So you can see that government's colors will matter. Um, and then the key question, what happens when the US is not going to lead and call for contributions? Uh, will it be this uh, if we look at the deployments and operations after 1990, it's been events-driven. Uh, I mean, it's all been events-driven. Nobody had planned for Kosovo or Bosnia or Libya or, well, Libya perhaps is an exception, Afghanistan. Uh, so if Europe is going to make sense in uh, security and defense policy, it has to rediscover uh, the logic of strategy. And that means deterrence, deterring against being put under pressure, being manipulated, being influenced. Uh, that's probably what deterrence means today. Uh, to say this will not be tolerated. Also in terms of massacres or, you know, if you have impunity in civil wars, you can kill 70,000 like in Libya and nobody cares. If you have this old fashioned realism as the only red line in a way that you have to have a national interest, then we are back to a very uh, sort of undesirable world, I think, where Europeans' values cannot, cannot have any future. If you don't want to defend this uh, emphasis on humanitarian law, uh, human rights, human dignity, all of the, should one say, the ideological ideas we have and hold on to very strongly, if you don't want to defend them, then they will be done in by power politics when others are more powerful. So deterrence, uh, which is I hope to try to develop and write about now, is really important. And one hasn't really started to think about it. And the same is also coercion, uh, the will to coerce effectively. And that, as you know, there's a rather good literature on this, there's an unusable, enormous literature on deterrence from the Cold War, because nuclear deterrence is not what it's about anymore, uh, at least not in the Western world. But uh, coercion is extremely important. There's a small literature on coercion, thank God, you know, not many key books, but it shows the empirical things show that uh, it fails, somebody said, 36% of cases were successful when Europeans coerced. And you can uh, just uh, uh, logically deduce that the credibility of the threat is the key to any coercion. If you, if you threaten and you don't do anything, uh, then you lose uh, faith and credibility and statue. This is, uh, by the way, an American who deters. This is uh, Obama in uh, Cal Tribune. And he says, this is Syria, and this is Assad with the nerve gas. Do not cross, this is the first red line. <laughs> do really not cross, this is the second red line. And the third one is, do really, really not cross. <laughs> this is where we are perhaps now. So it's interesting, uh, economists uh, in the latest issue says that the foreign policy of Obama is really a lot of wishful thinking 
uh, and uh, in light of Syria, Obama looked guilty of overconfidence and of arrogantly believing that by being cleverer than Mr. Bush, he could avoid traps, the traps that plagued him or the dilemmas uh, that plagued him. Uh, but in terms of leadership in both thinking and doing practice, uh, there is only one possibility in Europe, and that's the French-British uh, cooperation. And I mentioned this Livre Blanc, uh, which is very promising, and they don't cut as much as feared. Uh, and now, um, uh, in a way, the paradoxical situation that perhaps France and Britain are the ones that uh, uh, show a, a sort of willingness to, to deal with the unpleasantness of hard power. <laughs>